Um, so today we will be in Luke chapter 22. So if we turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22. Um, and while we find that, I want to just thank, of course, Pastor Ryan for this opportunity to preach and to bring God's word. Um, I have been, of course, greatly helped um, by many people that have stood in this pulpit. And um, I just pray that, um, that his spirit may move upon God's word. So we'll be in Luke chapter 22. And um, the verses that we'll be reading would be verse 31. And then we will read down to verse 34. And then we'll skip down to verse 54. And then we'll read down to 62. So I'll begin with verses 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And skipping now to verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following him, or following at a distance. And, they, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, don't, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he, he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let, let me pray and begin. begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word transforms us, um, that your word um, makes us new. Um, we pray, Lord, as we listen to your word, help us, Lord, to um, understand you, to see you more clearly, and that we may be conformed ever so greatly to your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And the Lord turned and looked. Have you ever considered what Peter saw that faithful night? What did Peter see in the face of Jesus? We read that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And you can tell a lot, of, a lot about a person by their facial expression. Um, for me, it's not hard for people to know whether I'm upset by just what's on my face. Before a, spoke, a word is even spoken, people really probably hit me with two questions. Either, are you okay? Or, what's wrong? 
And I think it's important for us to understand that there is a message being communicated by our faces. Now, the pressing question is, what message do you think was being communicated in the face of Jesus? Each four Gospels um, account of this denial by Peter and, their, and, and, and Peter's rejection of, of Jesus. But we see this small detail in Luke's Gospel that the Lord turned and looked away, looked at Peter. And my goal this afternoon is that to see many different faces of Jesus throughout the Gospels and to examine these three particular faces and how those faces reveal what Jesus' face might have looked like on that faithful night. First face we see is face down in prayer. Verse, verse 31, Jesus proclaims to Peter, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. And many times in the Gospels, when the name of someone is, is being repeated, like Simon, Simon, or Mary, we see that the following words are something that we need to listen to and we need to take note of. So we see here, Satan has a plan for, for Peter, that Satan has demanded to have him so that he might sift him like wheat. And this image here is one of a farmer beating out um, the wheat to separate the impurities. So Satan, being the great adversary and accuser, has lined up Peter in his crosshairs and has demanded that he might take him, might have him for his own destructive purposes. Now, Jesus doesn't just only state the desire of Satan, but also the strength of that desire. See, see, see the word demanded. This word denotes one of angry insistence that Satan is hell-bent on destroying the faith of Peter. Now, some translations translate this as asked to um, have Peter. And some, of course, have included the word permission, so demanded to have permission. Now, it's important to know whether Satan and his angry efforts to destroy Peter's faith, uh, Peter's face, faith um, ultimately has to come to a place where he has to ask for permission. He has to seek the Lord for permission. And this kind of reminds us of, of Job. Right at the beginning of Job, we, we see the Lord, oh, Satan, approach the Lord and request permission to afflict Job. And of course, God gives him permission. So we see ultimately in this passage, Jesus, God, is, is seated on his throne and he has the final say and that Satan has to ask for permission to approach him. Now, this same God, the God that has the final say, God incarnate, Jesus said something, the following verse that will forever change the destiny and the future of Peter. We read in verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You can picture a heavenly courtroom in which the judge is, so God is the judge, jury and executioner. And that Satan approaches him with a large folder under his arm and slams it on the table. And this folder has many different pages, and each page represents each day of our lives. 
As he flicks through, each page is filled with a mixture of different statements, direct quotes, eyewitness accounts of everything that we have said, done, and thought of. The, this folder contains everything that either me or you have ever said. And he presents this to God. Now, the scary thing is, is that these are true things, not lies. The things that we have done behind closed doors, but when, when no one can see us. And how ironic is that Satan, being the father of lies, presents true things in this courtroom. Now, before the judge grabs his gavel and, and slams down for our final sentences, a secret note, not secret, but a note is passed to the, to the judge. And there is dead silence as the judge opens this note and reads what's said on this note. And as he speaks, he echoes the words of Pontius Pilate, I find no fault in him. People are baffled. People are like, how? We've just heard of all of the sins and the ways in which he, we have denied him, and yet you say there's no fault in him. And as the judge reads this note, it reads Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Satan is silenced. The mouth of the accuser of the brethren is stopped. And yes, Satan does present true things to God about us, but those are only half-truths because in Christ, the full truth is that oh, though our sin is great, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, why does this matter? Why is this good news for us? Notice the author in that verse, in the author of Hebrews in that verse I just read. Note, um, he makes a point of the duration of Christ's intercessory work. He doesn't simply say he makes intercession for them. But he says he, may, he always lives to make intercession for them. His intercession for us doesn't expire or reach a boiling point where it's finished. We don't just need him to intercede for us when we come to the Lord, where we, where we repent of our sins for the very first time and he intercedes for us and it's done. But if we're honest, we ultimately need God's intercession for us time and time again throughout our lives. Whether we are Christians for two minutes or for 50 years, we desperately need Christ's intercession for us. And he always lives to make intercession for him. Many of you have heard my own testimony um, about what, four years ago where I, I said that the Lord saved me at 16 years of age. And I had um, a passion and love for the Lord. And at university, I backslid. And the Lord was merciful and gracious. And the reason why I'm a Christian today isn't because of ultimately my repentance, isn't, um, isn't because ultimately I attend church or I read the Bible. It's ultimately because Christ was praying for me. Christ, my name was in the words of Christ and he was praying for me. Despite our constant failures and frailties, even, our, even, even after conversion, we have a saviour who makes us his business to intercede on our behalf and for all those who follow him. Now, the last 15 years, there, there has been a recovery of the doctrine of justification, where when we put our faith and trust into Jesus, we are declared righteous. 
And largely this doctrine is, 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 is focusing on the past, what Christ has done on our behalf. So Christ, of course, has lived a perfect and sinless life. He has died a death that we deserved and he is raised to newness of life. That happened 2,000 years ago, but what is he doing right now? In this moment, what is Jesus doing right now? We don't have to speculate. He is interceding for us. What Christ accomplished for us 2,000 years ago on the cross, he right now, moment by moment, applying what he has done and he's interceding on our behalf. He approaches the throne room of God and he pleads with the Father of, for our clean conscience and the Father joyfully accepts. The Godhead, the Trinity, is at work in our intercession Robert Murray uh, McChain, one of the um, 19th century Scottish, Scottish, Scottish minister, um, said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What boldness does that elicit in us when we remember, just in the next room, that Jesus is interceding for us? As uh, growing up in an um, African Pentecostal household, I, I would hear my mum praying for me at 4, 5 a.m. I'd wake up some, um, some, some mornings with grease or of oil on my head. And, this, and it, it, would, it would be comforting to remember that I'm in bed and my mum is fighting for me. And that's what Christ does for us day after day. He is interceding for us so that we can have boldness as we seek to please him and live for him. Second face, face like flint. We read in verse 54, then they seized him and led him away. Now we know where he's going. We all know where Jesus is heading. We, what awaits Jesus in the next 12 hours would be great suffering and death. What awaited him was Roman soldiers mocking and beating him. He would be blindfolded and, and struck repeatedly while they would say blasphemous things like, prophesy, who hit you? They would craft a crown of thorns and thrust it on his head until blood would flow down his face. He would then be trialed in, an, in a biased, unjust court and be sent away to be flogged. The whips that would be used in his flogging would have, met, have bone and metal attached to it, leaving the back of Jesus falling apart. He would then have to carry a cross on that same back and head towards a spot outside of Jerusalem. Onlookers would be watching him, shaking their heads, spitting on him, and after reaching this spot, he would, would be nailed to the cross, that same cross, and bleed and die. And that was only a fraction of his suffering. We know that the full weight of God's judgment for our sin was placed on him. Now, 800 years ago, Prophet Isaiah would speak of a suffering servant who would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, 
And we read in chapter 50, verse 7, Therefore I have set my face like flint. Now, flint here was um, a very hard rock that the authors would, um, authors of the Bible would uh, figuratively express hardness and toughness of an impossible task and inflexibility of unwavering determination. Isaiah uses this expression um, to describe the Messiah's unwavering determination to persevere in what the Lord has set before him. And we see Luke, this, this same author of the book, of, of, the, of the gospel that we have been looking at this afternoon. In chapter 9, verse 51, he says, When the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, we know what awaited him. Jesus would, face, Jesus would face arrest, torture, and agonizing death. And he would not stop, but he would still go there. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem with the full knowledge that he would experience extreme pain. And that didn't buck, he didn't buckle under pressure. He, would, he was completely focused at the task at hand. Now, we see this perfectly illustrated in, in Matthew's Gospel, in um, chapter 16, verse 21, it reads, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, lo and behold, Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We see that the same Satan that demanded to have Peter is now influencing Peter. Jesus wasn't, wasn't going to stop on the mission that God had for him. Now, Many of us in our own suffering and trials and struggles and frustrations set our minds on man-centered hopes and solutions. Many of us strategize and figure out ways in which we can live our lives that require us to not trust in God. We live our lives avoiding all discomfort or all challenging or all suffering. Or maybe we have gone through suffering and that has numbed us or zapped our joy and delight in the Lord and our desire to serve him. Paul warns Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. So we live in a sinful and broken world, yes, where we will experience suffering as a result of our own sin or the sins of others. Suffering is a part of our human experience and the Bible does not sugarcoat this reality. Now, the pressing question before us is how do we persevere? How do we demonstrate gospel longevity? How do we persevere through suffering and trial? We need to see how Jesus did it. And the author of Hebrews tells us, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what does this joy look like? It's the joy of fully pleasing his Father in heaven, the joy of saving lost sinners and redeeming them from the curse of the law. He had a joy 
that allowed him to persevere to the end. This joy slightly, slightly reminds me of, of a woman going through pregnancy, right? We know that nine months of pain and, and discomfort and frustration will, will, of course, end in a, a painful birth. But what happens when they hold that baby in their hands? What's amazing is that this joy, once received, actually works backwards, allowing them to forget all that they went through. And that's the joy that we will experience when we meet Jesus. So what joy is set before us? We know that we have, if you're, in trust, if, if, if you're trusting in Christ, that we have the joy of eternal glory awaiting us, the joy of hearing the affirming words, good, well, well, well done, good and faithful servant, the joy of being given a glorified body free from physical ailments, and that we will know that we will be with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. That awaits us. That's a certainty if you're trusting in Jesus. And the more we, of course, think about that, the more we're able to experience and endure and to thrive despite the suffering that we might go through. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, once said this, <clears throat> My great object is to lead you to love him who so loved you that he set his face like flint in his determination to save you. O ye redeemed ones, on whose behalf this strong resolve was made, ye who have been brought by the precious blood of his steadfast, resolute redeemer, come and think a while, that your hearts may burn within you, and that your faces may be set like flint to live and die for him who lived and died for you. Christ has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, set on saving you, if you're trusting in Jesus. And as we think about that, as we think about his face, we are empowered to live for him. We are empowered to face suffering and pain and frustration in a manner in which we can honour and glorify the Lord. Third face, face full of mercy. Now, we know in this passage we see that Peter denies Jesus three times. All gospel accounts account of this. We, we see him again and again and again being asked questions about Jesus. Do you know him? No. Do you know him? No. And he rejects him and denies him three times. Now, what's quite interesting is in verse 59, we read that there is a time or a time spent from his second denial and his third denial. I'll read. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted. Peter had ample time to come to his senses. He had ample time to repent of his sins, come good on his promise that he said that he would go to prison and to death with him. But yet his heart grew colder. Now, this small detail here reveals the deadliness of sin. Sin has the ability to harden our hearts and to numb our affections to the Lord's conviction. How many of us have sinned against the Lord and have let hours, days or even weeks go 
without ever approaching the Lord. We can go without so long without seeing our great need for him and our, and our need to repent and to come to him. Time will go by and nothing is actioned, nothing is addressed and only when we are found out or we can't hide anymore do we resemble any sort of remorse. Following, following his third denial, we see Jesus turn and look at Peter. And then, of course, Peter looks at, at Jesus. And you can imagine almost a, a small little stare-off <laughs> for a moment. And what is the response from this look? Peter is suddenly reminded of the words of the Lord. And he comes to full awareness of his own sin and what he has done. And he responds by running out and weeping bitterly. Now, Peter's response over his sin does communicate his grief of what he's done. But we, of course, all know that Judas has the same response. Judas, in, in Matthew's Gospel, says that I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So both of these responses are eerily the same. They are the same. But we know Judas went on to, of course, hang himself, and Peter would go on to um, be an uh, apostle, someone who is sent. Now, it's important to go back to verse 33 and, sit and see what Christ says. He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So this turning here indicates that Peter's backslide into denial, he will once again return again to Jesus. And through his process, he will strengthen his brothers. So it does seem at some level, Satan's attempts to shake Peter was successful, but it was Christ's prayers that allowed him to not go to a place in which he couldn't come back from. I've always found it really amazing to see Christ's posture after his resurrection. We know that all, all, all of the apostles, all of the disciples, all of Peter, deserted Jesus when he needed him, when Jesus needed them the most. And you would think Jesus would come back with something to prove or complete vengeance. You would expect him to walk in into the room where they're all gathered and say, where were you guys? Oh, you all deserted me. And of course, you would think the disciples would have great terror and fear that surely he's going to pay us back for what we have done to him. Now, what's striking is that all the disciples, especially Peter, did the exact opposite. Can we turn our Bibles to John 21? John chapter 21, so just the next book. Now, at this point in John's gospel, Jesus has risen from the grave and has appeared to Mary Magdalene, to Thomas, and several other disciples apart from Peter. And we read in verse 3 of chapter 21, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So what does Peter do? 
after Christ has died. And he's hearing rumours of Christ being raised, but he hasn't encountered Christ yet. And his decision is to go back to where the Lord originally called him. Three years ago, Peter, um, Jesus said to Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But now Christ has died and, there, and his hope is lost and now he's going back to where he came from, but with zero success. Verses four says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know, what, did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, so, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So what does Peter do when he hears or sees that Jesus is coming back? He dives into the water and swims a hundred yards towards Jesus. Wouldn't you expect Peter to be the last person to do that? You would think Peter would be swimming the other way, but he swims towards Jesus, the one that he denied him three days ago. And Peter, and the way Peter responds in this moment gives us a picture of Jesus. It tells us something about the way Jesus acted or responded towards sinners. Verse 12, Jesus says, come and have breakfast. So the same people that deserted him, that left him for dead, welcomes them into, um, into fellowship and... I can't say a word, but it's fine, I'll move on. <laughs> so this communicates the, the, the heart of Jesus, the incredible mercy of Jesus. Now we have members of our own church that recognise that they don't live in line with scripture. And they have decided to actually not gather, not draw near, because they feel like Jesus wouldn't accept them. And the church, who ought to be the reflection of Christ, wouldn't embrace them, wouldn't help them. And that's a shame, because we see the same Jesus asks Peter, the one who denied him three times, to have breakfast. Read um, verses 15 to 17, account of an intense conversation between Peter and Jesus. It, it reads, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know why I love you? He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed 
my sheep. Free time, Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to reaffirm his love for him. Free times for free denials. Free denials are now matched with free reaffirmations of Peter's love for him. Jesus, in short, was restoring him. This shows the sufficiency of the grace and mercy of Christ. How deep the sin of Peter went, his grace went deeper. Where maybe we have failed a thousand times, yet the mercy of the Lord is sufficient for us. Paul says to the people, um, to, to people in, 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 in Ephesus, um, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So ultimately, sin is increasing and that grace abound all the more. Now, going back to my earlier question, what did Peter see on that faithful night as he looked in the face of Jesus? What message do you think was communicated on the face of Christ? Do you think, do you think it was, I told you so? I don't think Jesus was gloating over Peter's failure. Do you think his eyes were angry, fire? I don't think so. Jesus will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoking candle. Maybe it was, how could you? I don't think the look communicated personal hurt because Jesus did not come to burden us or burn us with guilt, but to take it away. I think the love, I think the look that Jesus had on that faithful night as he looked at Peter was one of pure and holy love. Now, we cannot bear to see that in our own sin. In our own self-righteousness, we might even want Jesus to be angry or disappointed with us. I have expressed this many times where I would rather Jesus beat me over the head than to forgive me, than to show mercy to me. And time and time again, we see Jesus and the Lord defy all of our expectations. And before we get there, we see that Peter looked away and ran and hid. If we have sinned against the Lord, we could continue to look to him. If we did, we would eventually see that his holy love accepts us, it, it pardons us, it cleanses us, it relieves us of guilt and removes shame. It heals the broken and lifts the worthless. If we could really look in the face of Jesus that faithful night, it would express, come unto me. And Peter's biggest problem isn't that he denied Jesus three times. We have already saw that, that the Lord restored him. Our biggest problem isn't our failing and even our denying of Jesus. Peter's biggest problem is that he wept alone and turned away. He turned his face away from seeing Jesus. Our biggest problem is that we look away from Christ. Christ has taken away our sins. Now we must look to him and continue to look to him and rejoice in his loving acceptance. Now, Saul might hear this and say, okay, great, perfect. Christ has forgiven me. Christ has embraced me. There is nothing to be done. 
There is no response to his mercy and his grace. But we, but we, are, we are reminded of, of what Paul says to the people of Corinth. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul essentially says that if you behold the Saviour, you will be like him. You will become what you behold. You will grow in Christ's likeness as we continue to behold him. Now, how do we do this? I think sometimes I might have spoken um, about something that's very up in the air, not very practical. How do we behold him? We behold him by coming to his word. We behold him by communing with him in prayer. We behold him together as we gather every week. We behold him as we sing and listen to God's word. We behold him as we gather for prayer meeting and for various different meetings throughout the week. And when our faces are down, we need each other to lift our faces up as we continue to behold the Saviour. Look to him. Let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we look to you, we are changed to look and reflect more of you. Lord, forgive us. Many of us, all of us, have been like Peter here. We have rejected you, denied you, turned our backs on you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you call us to come to you and to repent of our sins and to place our full faith and trust to you. And if there's anybody in this room that hasn't repented of their sins, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you may call them to repentance, that you may convict them of their sin, and that, Lord, they may face and look to you and behold your glory. Lord, we pray for this coming week. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you may help us to have the habit of lifting our faces and seeing you. Lord, help us to be disciplined in our time with you in your word and in prayer. Help us to be disciplined as we seek to maintain the rhythms of, um, of ministry and, and gathering with your people. And as we do this, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may fill us and empower us to live lives of godliness and faithfulness. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.